Hello everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to the history of video games. My name is Wes and I'm here as always with the wonderful Ben. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm doing great. How are you, Wes? I am doing pretty great myself. Feeling good. good. Feeling ready to talk about video games. The thing we all oh, yeah. know and love. <laughs> well, you want to get us started, Wes? Sure. What have you been playing? Well, you know, have you beaten Baldur's Gate yet? No. <laughs> <laughs> I have not. The third act continues to just get huger, more stuff. I mean, I have a whole city to explore, and it yep. turns out it's a big city. <laughs> Thankfully, my game is still running it. My uh, CPU is a little out of date now. My GPU is pretty good, but mm-hmm. it's uh, still running things pretty well. So I can confirm it runs on whatever I have, like an i7 or something. <laughs> Yeah, but I've still just, I need to find more things to play, but I've been kind of pretty busy. Work's been busy, so I've been wanting those comfort games. So it's just been lots of Palia and lots of Baldur's Gate. (laughs) Okay, nice. More co-op Baldur's Gate. Palia, my recent endeavor has been to catch every single fish in the game because there's an achievement for it. And I get a little fish on a plaque if I do it which you know i gotta get that like one of those bass guys that talk to you exactly yes i don't think it sings as much but yeah (laughs) same basic vibe and i am two away but man you have to dump some resources into it and there's some that are hard to catch i very early on said i'm 100 fine with looking up how to catch all these because there's three different types of bodies of water that you can fish from there's three different types of bait you can use, either no bait, a worm, or a glow worm. And there's four different times of day. So <laughs> yeah, any of those can have, you know, an effect over what kind of fish you are able to catch. So I looked all of it up, got two more to catch, and I'm pretty excited. I might have to wait, though, before I do the next challenge, which is to catch a gold star version of every single fish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Which seems random as heck and basically like you just have to fish until you die but who knows if i get really bored maybe i'll pick it up (laughs) okay the game also just introduced a patch for a halloween update so of course more paid cosmetics which i'm not too interested in but they did add a new vendor or a new uh, like store where you can buy jack-o'-lanterns and halloween decorations for in-game currency that you can earn just by selling stuff Uh, so that's really fun and i'm glad they have that in there and they're also Mm -hmm. messing around with the idea of an obstacle course uh, which for some reason you access through an arcade machine and it like teleports you to another world (laughs) (laughs) they said it's still very much in the uh testing stages but okay yeah no still really enjoying that game hopefully I'll be able to play something new for next week. But yeah, Baldur's Gate 3 and Palia still great. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, last time I had to look up something for fishing in Palia, I looked up something on the wiki and it said that the fish was available in the evening. And like that's not a time. (laughs) There's like sunset, sunrise, and night and day, I think. And I was like, what is happening? (laughs) And I had to look that up, but there are, there's a morning and an evening, which you can see on the clock, but they're just before and just after nighttime. So it's. Well, I was able to catch them in nighttime. Okay. I thought it might've been something where it was like, it includes sunset and sunrise or something. You know, I don't know. Certain fish that have overlap with evening and night, but I have 
found some that are only evening. So, <laughs> oh god, and that's a three-hour window in the game, in game time, which is I don't know, probably like twenty minutes or something. Yeah. So okay, it's well, tough, but it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that sounds cool. But what have you been playing recently, or do you still have a little bit of a backlog to catch us up yeah. on? Yeah. I have a bit of a backlog. I did beat <laughs> two games this week, so the backlog nice. grows. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they were small games. But yeah, let's go back to the one furthest away that I need to talk about. And this is a pretty big one, Wes. Maybe you've heard of this one. It's called This War is Mine. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was in the Humble Bundle I got, and I think it was one of the like bigger selling ticket items, you know? Mm-hmm. I think it's a pretty well-received, pretty well-selling game. The main... uh type of game it is it's kind of like a 2d stealth survival game there's kind of two phases to it in the first phase it's kind of like a meta game where you're in your hideout and you kind of upgrade the hideout cook food for your survival members which in this game you're kind of in control of like three members of a party who are just trying to survive together and so you're kind of cooking food making sure that they're healthy in this kind of metagame phase, you're trading supplies or doing some crafting. And then at night, you select one of the party members and you go out on a stealth mission to gather supplies. And there is some combat with that. So the game's pretty cool. I love the premise of it and the whole aesthetic is really good. It reminds me like a couple of weeks ago, I talked about Radio Commander and how yeah. that's kind of like an anti-war game that I hated how it was delivering the message and this game is like the complete opposite it's like the same message but it makes you empathize with the people in that situation right yeah and i think that's like yeah part of the way they do that effectively and i've only watched it and played it a very tiny bit so you'll know a bit better than i do but putting you in the shoes of instead of the commander you know a refugee Mm -hmm. who is surviving in that situation it's a much more like empathetic situation for the message that they're trying to give you which is really cool yep the general story is that you're just a normal citizen who kind of got caught up in a city where rebels have taken over the city and the government has sieged the city and blocked off water and food and nobody can come in or come out and your goal is to survive until a ceasefire is called which is kind of random i think it happens anywhere between like 30 or 40 days in So you have to survive something like 30 or 40 days and then the game ends and the game has multiple endings depending on how well you do. If you have uh, like certain characters have certain kind of quests or story beats to them and you know did you solve any of them? Did anybody die? The endings are very varied Um, and I think there's even some ways you can kind of end the game early like you can get smuggled out of the city and stuff so there's lots of different ways. I pretty much played, I think I played something like 10 hours or so, and I played until I got to the ending once, and it wasn't a great ending. I barely made it through. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but uh, it was fine. And um, yeah, I mean, there's so many great things about the game from the aesthetics and the story. There's lots of RNG kind of elements, like you can start with different survival members. Each of them have their strengths and weaknesses. Maybe some of them are like, like two of them are brothers and that means they have an emotional connection so if something happens to to one of them you know something will happen to the other person tons of like different replayability there you can start with different people and of course like all the locations have randomized loot and randomized enemies so um 
it's a game where you really are supposed to kind of play through multiple runs. And I really enjoyed it. There were some things I didn't like about it. I think <laughs> I think the biggest thing is kind of tied to the difficulty of the game. I mean, the game is like Iron Man, so you, there's no safe scumming here. Right. And uh, certainly for me, I felt like if something bad happened, especially, you know, less than halfway into the run, I would just restart the run. And I feel like that's generally probably not what you're supposed to do. But um, I did that a lot, and it kind of made me play very risky early on knowing that I would just restart. So I felt like I was kind of gaming it a bit, but I, I think the only reason I did that is because the punishments are so harsh. You know, if you lose somebody and um, it's very easy for something to go bad. I mean, the game's a stealth game and you can do combat, but you're not really supposed to. So like you can die very quickly and uh, that can make a situation, you know, be fine in one minute. And then all of a sudden you feel like you should restart the run. Right. And uh, kind of tied with that, you know, I think a lot of my deaths early on were simply because I didn't know the game's mechanics. And I felt like that was something where the game should have told me those things. Like, I understand if I make a mistake and do something I shouldn't, okay, I get punished. But there are many times where I felt like I was doing the right thing and I still got punished. <laughs> you know, case in point, it's very easy to get a knife in the game. And if you knife somebody, it only takes a couple stabs, maybe three stabs and they're dead. So... When I first got a gun, which is really hard to do in the game, I thought, oh man, this is going to like one shot somebody because I mean, just finding a single bullet is like pretty rare in the game. So I had like a pistol and five bullets. I was like, I'm going to be invincible. (laughs) So I sneak up behind a guy and shoot him in the back of the head, assuming he's going to immediately die. And his health only goes down like 10%. And I'm like freaking out. I fire, I fire all the rest of my bullets and He's still up and he just turns around with a shotgun and one shots my dude. Like he was wearing armor, but I didn't know that. I didn't know what would happen. Right. All the rest of my runs, I didn't even do the gun. I just was knife only. Because <laughs> I guess knives go through armor. I don't really know. But yeah, it was just like I felt like that wasn't really my fault. Like <laughs> I didn't know that mechanic. And uh, the price of not knowing is having to restart my run, which was annoying. It happened other times, like a big part of the end game is surviving winter. I didn't know the game had seasons, so I wasn't like stockpiling wood the whole game. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, just stuff like that. So I felt like the game is one of these where you're going to die a bunch just learning the game's mechanics. And then you have like a, you know, you have the knowledge to actually go far in it, which is, you know, similar to a lot of roguelikes. But I don't know, it just didn't feel satisfying when i died and i didn't really think it was my fault so right yeah that was my only like critique of it otherwise the game's great it's probably not one i would recommend to everybody but you know do you have it wes i would definitely recommend it for you because i think you would love the setting right yeah it definitely seems up my alley and uh knowing that you enjoyed it yeah i'm definitely gonna have to check it out yeah and it was interesting even though i restarted my run a lot i always wanted to restart my run and and kind of get a new seed it was kind of like restarting a world of minecraft or something like i don't know it was fun to restart sometimes so the game definitely has a uh one more try mentality to it so right it's a good game i enjoyed it very cool yeah and i know they a lot of times also uh sell the game with charity bundles to Mm -hmm. you know give back to especially people who who are affected by wars and things like that so it's an interesting way to like make a game out of that, but then also try to make a cause out of it. So glad it's uh 
working out yeah. for him and it's a pretty good game definitely yeah it's a uh, it was definitely fun to take a look at and yeah a very uh, poignant game so yeah i definitely check it out if you guys haven't very cool all right with that being said though wes we've got a special topic we have got huge games today ultima and rogue but we oh, have yeah. kind of talked a little bit about them in the past so we're not going to do any either of them for a special topic Instead, there's another computer that comes out in June of 1981, and we're actually going to get into July later today. So if we wanted to cover it, you know, in June where we're at, we had to do it now. <laughs> and that is the Xerox 820 computer. Yes. So, uh, man, we have not uh, said Xerox in a long time since like the Xerox Alto in like 75 or something. <laughs> so uh, what have they been doing, Wes? Are they just making printers? What's going on? <laughs> well, let me give you a brief refresher on their basic history and kind of talk about what they've been doing recently. Like Ben said, we haven't really talked about them in a while. Xerox was founded all the way back in 1906 in New York, and it was originally called the Halloid Photographic Company, and they started just by making photographic paper. And then, you know, kind of going on to that printing route, there was someone who came up with the way that you could use dry powder, dry powder toner to print onto something. So the company actually hired a Greek philosopher to pick a name for like that process of dry powder <laughs> printing. And he came up with serography, like X-E-R-O, serography, which translates to dry writing. And that is how they ended up with changing their name in 1961 to the Xerox Corporation. So I guess Xerox kind of just means okay. like dry. I don't know. <laughs> but it's funny to know that that's where it came from and that they were like, hey, we need a new name for this product. Hire a Greek philosopher. That's, that's the way to do it. <laughs> but kind of jumping ahead to 1970, when they start to kind of get into other realms, other than just the printing and copying realm, which they were already doing really well in. In 1970, one of their head scientists, a guy named Jack Goldman, was given permission to kind of find ways to create new technology for the company. So he created the Palo Alto Research Center, also called PARC, that was made basically to develop new technologies for Xerox. And this was just a group of individuals who were given intellectual freedom to basically come up with whatever ideas they could. The problem was, though, that Xerox was doing so well with printing and copying if something didn't really involve that they weren't super interested in it so park ended up creating the xerox alto which was a mainframe computer that we talked about before a very powerful computer i think ben looked it up and initially it sold for like forty thousand dollars or something like that but it was never commercially sold it was only sold to the government in a few cases and mainly used for internal research I know they had like, I think, 100 Xerox Altos all kind of on an internet system at one point in the company. But for whatever reason, Xerox didn't really see a market for selling the Alto. And around this time, Steve Jobs, you know, doing his thing, creating stuff. <laughs> and he was told by a couple people that he should swing by Park and see some of the stuff that they'd come up with. And they had come up with a bunch of different things, but the thing that caught his attention the most was that they had invented basically the graphical user interface, the GUI. And he thought it was so great. He bought the technology by selling a bunch of stock that he had so then he could again create that. 
And Xerox kind of missed out on the opportunity to be the forerunners of all this great microcomputer technology because they just weren't super interested in adopting it. Even though that they made it, like right. their employees made it. Their employees like, made nah. it. And the company was just like, yeah, but printers are pretty cool. And <laughs> <laughs> printers will be around forever, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hey, Xerox is still hanging in there, right? Doing the printing <laughs> stuff. So maybe. I guess so. But they're not Apple and they're not Microsoft who both kind of jumped on this idea and ran with it. Uh, but fast forwarding to where we are now in June of 1981, they were still making some computers. They designed the Xerox 820, and it was kind of designed to beat the IBM PC to market. And to do that, they ended up using a bunch of components from a kit computer that had previously been released called the Ferguson Big Board computer. But that's kind of all I know about the creation of the 820 itself. <laughs> we'll have to see what this computer does, knowing that Xerox kind of dropped the ball on adopting great computer technology <laughs> yeah it's gonna be pretty big and i find the story itself to be fascinating for those of you who don't know the graphical interface the gui becomes windows and it also becomes mac os which is why those companies are the biggest two companies in the world pretty right. much and this fascinating that bill gates was somehow involved in this he just happened to be working with apple on some third party related thing when all this was going down so he like just heard it through the grapevine and then <laughs> apple apparently steve jobs made microsoft sign an agreement saying you're not allowed to come out with what would be windows until our mac you know version is out you know you can't do anything with this technology and they had to sign it but the way the contract was written it was set for a certain date which was the launch date of the mac and then the mac got Push back, and so Windows came out first, which is just crazy because <laughs> it started in Xerox. Apple found out somehow. Windows made it to market first. Yeah, wow. It's just a crazy uh, story, and the fact that this was just in Xerox's you know own employees' hands, and their the employees showed it, and they were like, "Eh, whatever." <laughs> crazy. Yeah. But yeah, the Xerox eight twenty does not use any of the technologies from the Xerox Alto. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was really um just as you mentioned kind of a bunch of off the shelf components mixed with this Ferguson big board and they just wanted to get something out before IBM did. Um Xerox by the way and this is kind of interesting too. I didn't I read this that other than TRS-80, Xerox was the only other Fortune 500 company that had a computer out at the time. Mm. Um so Apple and uh Commodore are just not even remotely on the same size as someone as Xerox or Radio Shack. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But um, yeah, the Xerox 820, I don't, to be honest, I don't really understand this PC that well, Wes, because, yeah. you know, obviously it's probably made for businesses. The main specs of it, it's got a Zilog Z80, which, you know, we've seen tons of them. That's not a big deal. Came with like CPM on it. And it came with a keyboard and CRT monitor, but it was not a color monitor. It was only black and white. Oof. The display and resolution were only 80 by 24, which I don't think is good at all. And um, like I think the main kind of driving factors to this is that it came with 64 kilobytes of RAM by default, which is pretty good. I would say it's pretty high. 
and I think it can be expanded quite a lot. And it also could come with either two five and a quarter disk drives or uh, two eight inch disk drives. So I, they were really pushing the disk drives and I think there was also floppy drives installed on it as well. So I think that was like its main selling point. It's just kind of a lot of peripherals, a lot of storage and a decent CPU, certainly, but nothing too crazy. But somehow, like, all of this added up to a 30-pound computer that sold at almost $3,000 when it released, which I wow. think is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was called uh, or nicknamed The Worm because it was supposed to compete with the Apple II, which came out four years before. But how are you going to do that when you're, like, three times the price of an Apple II? <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand. Right. I think Apple, they did come out with the Apple III, which was a business thing, but then that failed on its own. So I don't know what Xerox was thinking here. <laughs> I think they were trying to just come out with something before IBM did, but IBM actually like made their computer and we'll talk about it later. <laughs> but Xerox, I don't, they just like put some random pieces together and they're like, okay, well, this is good enough, I guess. And it, yeah. it bothers me because. I feel like the one advantage Xerox has over every other company is that they're so big that they could make this computer cheap and sell it, right? And just be like, oh, yeah, we're going to sell like a million of these and we'll get our money that way. Because, you know, they have all the production and the distribution networks that a big company can enjoy. And they didn't even do that, it feels like, because the price is ridiculously expensive. (laughs) So... I don't understand what's going on here. There's not a lot of games made for this system, unfortunately. It uses CPM, which is a programming language that a lot of games are coded in or can run in. So it, there's a lot of like ports of things to this system, but there's nothing that I've found that was actually ever made specifically for it. The PC also launched with a version of Microsoft Basic. So there's going to be some basic games that come over, but nothing original. So it's a pretty big letdown because Xerox could have been, this could have been like, uh, I don't know, the real Apple three, <laughs> but instead it's like something we've seen before by like small companies yeah, and priced ridiculously. I read on, I think the wiki that the Osborne one, which is the laptop we talked about not too long ago, could pretty much run everything that the Xerox 820 could run, but it was portable, only weighed like half as much. And it came bundled with a bunch of software that Xerox made people pay for extra. So it's just like so weird. Yeah. And it's not worth paying that extra money just for the larger screen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, true. So, um, yeah, it's pretty weird. It's a, it's a big letdown, but um, what can you do, man? Yeah. Well, now we just got to cheer ourselves up because we know that we have some fantastic big name games to talk about in the timeline. So let's take a short break, and then when we're back, we're going to be talking about Ultima and Rogue.
Hello and welcome back. Let's hop into Ultima, otherwise known as Ultima 1, The First Age of Darkness. That's a good name. <laughs> that is a good name. I think that name comes later once there's more Ultima games. Yeah. But it's okay. I'm just, you know, I, I just wanted to mention it. <laughs> no reason. But yeah, this game came out. We've got a date for June of 1981 on the Apple II. It's uh, published through the California Pacific Computer Company and was originally written by Richard Garriott with help from Kenneth Arnold. So this is a uh, this is a big one, Wes. This is the yeah. same team that, or Richard Garriott made uh, a Calabeth, which yep. you covered, I think, last year. And this game, what can I say about it? It feels like they took a Calabeth, which was like a dungeon crawling game. But then they're like, what if there's an open world and you, then you go into the dungeons? Right. And then they were like, what if you go into space <laughs> and you do all of that in one massive RPG with kind of D&D mechanics and stats in there? That's kind yeah. of what this is. It's nuts. And it was so big that when me and Ben were taking a look at it, we were both so excited that we are going to do a dual review of this. Oh, yeah. A couple more things I wanted to mention about it. It was originally going to be called Ultimatum. But it was shortened to Ultima because a board game was coming out called Ultimatum at the same time. And Ultima was actually built on a lot of the subroutines that already existed for Akalabeth. Uh, for example, the first-person dungeons in Akalabeth are pretty much put straight into Ultima. But somehow, you know, I think it had multiple discs that it needed to run. <laughs> they were able to fit this all onto an Apple II so that you can have all this going on in one giant game. Uh, a little bit of theming. The goal of the game is to find the gem of immortality and destroy it to stop the evil sorcerer, I think, Mundane, from being evil. It doesn't sound that that evil of a name. It sounds like Mundane. It does sound just like, like Mundane, yeah. Know? <laughs> which is not like, it's like bland, you know? Just some guy. That's what it means. Yeah. But no, he's an evil and apparently intergalactic, I guess, <laughs> uh, sorcerer. Your character is just known as The Stranger. Gotta love it. Uh, and as Ben said, you know, it starts very fantasy, but gets very sci-fi. I think there may even be lightsabers <laughs> at one point. Yeah, so, um, well, should we start? I, how do we best describe the gameplay, Wes? I think um, as far as, like, the combat goes, the main mechanics, it's kind of, it's fast turns, right? It's real yeah. time, but it's fast turns. And uh, the combat is just, like, you know, you walk up to something, they hit you, you hit, uh, you hit them, right. they hit you, you hit him. It's, it's not really like uh, you're picking a move set like in Pokemon or something or like total real time combat where you've got an actual punch button. It's just kind of like things walk up to each other and then they take damage. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and you can actually choose to attack, but still it's just a back and forth. You get a quick message that says you missed or you hit and then that's sort of it. Yeah. But that is the main combat that kind of, I believe, works the same way both in the overworld where wandering monsters can run up to you and you can run into stuff in the wild and when you're mm -hmm. in the first person dungeons as well. I know for my time of losing a weapon and then just spending about 10 minutes trying to punch a rat to death. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> But nice. you have this sort of mishmash of gameplay. You have the overworld section where you can enter towns. You can go into dungeons, which then puts you into the first-person mode. Uh, you could be attacked by wandering monsters, and killing those monsters gives you gold. And then you also have 
I think a system that was in a Calabath as well, where moving around costs you food. And I mm -hmm. think if you run out of food, it's pretty much game over. So you have to visit those towns to buy food. But there's also vendors where you can upgrade your armor. You can buy transportation like boats and horses to traverse the world faster and to be able to traverse water. And you can also buy weapons and visit a pub, which I wasn't too sure what happens there, uh, but you can do it. <laughs> okay, nice. Yeah, and as far as the world itself, I mean, the overworld is massive. I think even the dungeons feel pretty big to me. Yeah. Um, but the overworld itself is comprised of like four continents, and it's so big, it's, it's not one of these where the whole map is on your screen at all times. Like, you're in a zoomed-in view, and then the camera kind of follows you as you go from tile to tile. So, um, the world feels absolutely massive, and the game itself is absolutely massive. Yeah. There's a full video on YouTube of a full playthrough. It's 10 hours long, which I didn't... I'm surprised they could upload that to YouTube. To <laughs> That's got to be like a 300 gigabyte video file or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's a huge game. I mean, it involves everything from exploring, visiting kings, getting quests so that you can yep. please all of the kings, traveling to space shortly thereafter, and then gathering gems, saving a princess, traveling through time, killing jesters. It's <laughs> a long saga with many things going on in yeah. it. And we should say quickly, there's a manual for this game. Yes. We yeah. found the original manual for when it came out, but there's no like, real mention of what you're supposed to do in the manual. So I'm surprised uh, anybody kind of was able to figure out, you know, you have to go into space at one point <laughs> or anything like that. But yes, it's really interesting. The manual is pretty much all about how to play the game, but no real backstory at all. And I actually, before I even looked at the game and was watching videos and playing it, I read, decided to read the manual first. And I was like, okay, yeah, combat monsters. And then I got to the part about the spaceship. I was like, well, is that a typo? It's <laughs> like, what is that? So it was pretty funny. But yeah, the, the manual really doesn't say what you're supposed to be doing. And there is a pretty long, complicated sequence of events to beating this game, I feel. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it doesn't exactly seem very intuitive. I mean, we found a guide that came out later as well. And it's like, yes, you have to kill the jester to get the key to free the princess, but only after you've been to space or else it just gives you gold. And I'm like, how the heck would anyone yeah. <laughs> know that? But people yeah. obviously figured it out and had a good time with it. Yep. And something else I always thought was cool was Richard Garriott um, went by the pen name Lord British and Lord British's castle is in this game. Yeah. It's kind of one of the last locations you have to go to. So I, I thought that was pretty cool. I always enjoy it when the developers find a way to put themselves into the game. And I think just in general, just the how large the world is and how many different monsters there are and the different continents, the, how they look different, and the amount of towns. It just kind of makes a world and in a way that we haven't seen very often, you know? Yeah. It's pretty special. For sure. So with all that prelude, do we want to start talking about some of our ratings for this game? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. All right. Well, I was going to start us off with graphics, I think. Sure. Um, we both decided to give that a 3.5 out of 10. This is on the Apple II, so we've got that classic kind of black background with the whites, purples, greens, and blues. Uh, but it does look pretty great in this game. And honestly, half the reason that I gave this as high a score as I did is just because even if 
one element doesn't look that good, you have about 50 different other things going on in this game. You have yeah. an overworld that has mountains, colors, caves, towns, oceans. When you go into the towns, it actually zooms in and you have stalls with different vendors. There's a first person wireframe dungeon mode in it that actually has representations <laughs> of the enemies that look pretty good. There's a space overworld kind of thing. I mean, it's like just nutty how much is going on. Uh, so even if some of the elements are simple in the classic kind of Apple II way, it still all looks really good when it's all put together. Yeah, one of my favorite parts about it, and this is kind of a weird part, is the fact that the dungeons take you from this top-down view to first-person view and is now wireframe dungeons and i think the the creatures in the dungeons are pretty well drawn i yeah, mean they're they in that wireframe style unlike the sprite style of the overworld they look pretty darn good i think it's an indefinite improvement from a calabeth uh even slightly but there's tons of different monsters and you can definitely tell what they are when you encounter them so i thought that was cool then you don't see a lot of games that change from top down to first person very much yeah yeah so that's pretty cool. I mean, it is kind of like they made two games, and I think that is what they did. Basically, but, yeah. <laughs> um, it works pretty well, I think. And and most of the, like, the fact that you have combat in the top-down point of view, and it's the same system as in the first person, I find that to be pretty crazy. Like, how did they get that to work? I don't know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so there's definitely some really cool handcrafted parts to the graphics as well. Like there's some moments where it's very, like the sprites are very undetailed because you're in the top down view, but they're, maybe they're colorful and they kind of represent some different things. But then you go into the wireframe graphic part and I feel like they're very detailed, but you lost all the color. <laughs> yeah. Like there's some good and bad in both, um, but together it's kind of a, a nice mix, I think. I think it's better than one or the other for everything. Yes, exactly. Uh, but yeah. Maybe we can talk about the gameplay now, since you were talking about the combat a little bit, Ben. Mm -hmm. um, we also decided to give that a 3.5 out of 10. I mean, again, just the sheer variety of things you can do in the game is a huge part of the rating. You have yep. dungeons that you can explore. You can gain gold when you're exploring the dungeon, and then you can go to town to buy scrolls and armor and weapons. There's a sort of level up or like increasing your health points system by paying gold to kings you can also increase your stats by doing quests for the kings there's modes of transportation you can buy i mean there's just a lot going on yeah and we haven't even mentioned the going into space part which right. turns the game from this rpg to a turret gunning type game right <laughs> on a star trek style grid i really feel like again he had this like fantasy rpg and then he's like let's just throw star trek in here <laughs> and it's nothing special you know it's just star trek uh with some real-time you know turret gunning gameplay which we've seen a thousand times but it's like why is this in the game but it is and it does add to the game <laughs> and just adds to the variety and the craziness of it and that part looks and plays good as well i think you know, there's like a sequence where you're kind of going through um, space time or something. You see all the stars fly by. It's cool. So I just think the game, it has a lot of variety. It has a lot of um, depth and like longevity to it. You know, the game's just absolutely massive and there's tons to do. So yeah. I, I really like that about it. And one thing critical to the 
length of the game and being able to enjoy it is the fact that there is a save feature. Yes. It's just so vital. And there's actually like a save game and load game kind of feature in this. So that, <laughs> it would definitely be a brutal game without it. So that definitely uh, weighs heavily on how good a gameplay is. <laughs> By the way, I forgot to ask you this earlier, Wes, but I read that um, whatever class you pick and whatever sex you pick, because you can pick male or female in this, it doesn't actually alter anything, and you can just get any piece of armor or equipment that you want. So oh, it was just for uh, role-playing, I guess. <laughs> That's funny, yeah, because I picked an elf and a cleric, and I thought I'd have more spells, but I couldn't find right. any way to use them. <laughs> yeah, you probably didn't. You probably had to buy them or something. Right. Um, but yeah, I still thought this game, it just, there's so much to it and, uh, it's the beginning of something special too. So, uh, before we go into relevance, we have to talk about sound yet. There's usually not a whole lot of sound in computer games. And this is certainly one of those times <laughs> there's a lot of beeps. And I will say this game uses the beeps a lot more than most computer games. There's like pretty much a beep whenever anything happens so they happen all the time they're not as scary as some previous games when it's completely <laughs> silent and then all of a sudden it blasts you so Wes and I gave it a one and a half out of ten because of the beeps and how often they happen but there's nothing really special about the uh, sound Yep. And then relevance, as you mentioned, Ben, that's a big one. And, you know, again, we're talking about relevance for how to defines other games going forward, not just for how popular it is or how known it is. And mm -hmm. I didn't even really know much about Ultima until we started going into the history of video games, but it really is helping define like open world RPGs in a way that we haven't really seen before. Uh, so we settled on a nine out of 10 for Ultima. It's the start of a long-running RPG series that we're definitely going to play a lot of games in. And it's an open world, pretty much, where you can explore dungeons all mixed into one package in probably the best way that we've seen before. Yeah, and we should mention, too, that this eventually gets ported around. The most popular version of this is the DOS version, which I think comes out in 1985. So we will probably play it again like the first game again, mm -hmm. it'll have a completely, I think it was completely remade from scratch for that, including all new overhauls to the visuals. So, you know, the game is going to grow and continue to change even just in the first game, not even counting the sequels, which we'll, we will definitely take a look at. So yeah, it's the start of something really cool. All right. So then should we talk about our overall score for Ultima? Uh, yep. Drum roll, please. We gave it a... 3.25 out of 10 uh, fudged the average maybe a little bit just because you got to throw the relevance in there for that final rating. Uh, <laughs> it's just an impressive step forward for the RPG genre. Still has some issues for me. I had with kind of like streamlining the gameplay and mm -hmm. maybe adding a little bit more of that bizarre, interesting world sort of into the game, but it still just has so much to explore, so much you can interact with, and a huge amount of stuff you can do. Um, what do you got to say about it, Ben? 
Well, I actually have a question for you, Wes. I mean, sure. To me, I look at this game and I compare it to the old Plato RPGs because those yeah. are the ones that we've played quite a lot and we really loved them. They were so early in the history of video games, but you know they were kind of confined to the Plato system. Whereas this is actually the first like really big open world, you know, huge RPG that's available for anybody on the Apple II. And I feel like this one is going to be a lot more influential than the Play-Doh ones, unfortunately. Yeah. Cause just because they were kind of stuck on their own system. But is there anything from the Play-Doh games that you think, man, if this game had, you know, that system or did it a little differently, then it would be perfect? Because it's obviously it's very heavily inspired somewhat by those games, but it does feel very, you know, original as well. So I don't know. Yeah. I feel like to me, it's, it's kind of its own thing. Yeah. You know, Moria was a great one, and I feel like the world and first-person dungeon exploring, Ultima does pretty well. Like, it nails that. Um, the towns to explore, the stuff to buy, all that that was in Moria is in this as well. So, I don't know, maybe just a little bit of the randomness from Pettit 5, or like, I forget if that had randomness in it, but other types of games might be good. But other than that, yeah, it, it kind of does a really great job of nailing that genre when you say randomness you mean from the dungeon design or yes. the uh, combat yeah, yeah. or something more dungeon design is kind of what i was leaning towards yeah. yeah i'm wondering i have no idea if the future games in this series continue with the akalabeth wireframe first person dungeons or not part of me feels like they have to drop that eventually like <laughs> it feels maybe the most outdated part of the game right but then again it is you know they added the whole two games on top of it so <laughs> obviously those are, do feel new right now but um yeah it's it'll, it's very interesting to see where it might go from here so i'm super excited but with that wes uh we have some other games to talk about including rogue but we won't oh, get yeah. there quite yet there's one honor mention here i want to say it's called stellar escort by jeff zinn and big five software it was a pretty cool turret gunning game on the trs 80 that also combined a top-down dodging game so you had to be careful dodging enemies while lining up for the next shot, which sounds pretty crazy. Oh, yeah. All right, but then we're getting straight into another huge game. I got to take a look at Rogue. Uh, specifically, this is version 3.6, which released around June 16th of 1981. And we've talked about Rogue before, but we've never really covered it before because a lot of the versions were not available for many people to play, and they aren't kind of like the classic well-known versions but 3.6 is that classic ascii graphics it was actually distributed fairly widely through arpanet to a lot of different college students for free uh, so a lot of people played this version and uh, i just really wanted to take a look at it being such a fan of roguelikes that i am so rogue was originally created by michael toy and glenn wickman uh, when they were attending university of california santa cruz and it was inspired by things like 1971 Star Trek, Colossal Cave Adventure, and of course, Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, Toy and Whitman set out to create a text adventure feel, but with more replayability, so they really wanted to get the randomness in there. And they came up with the name Rogue. Obviously, there's a class in D&D, but they felt like it fit because instead of a traditional D&D party, it's just one character going out there on their own. Uh, and instead of total random generation for the game, they went for procedural generation, which is going to be important because it's obviously very key to kind of the genre of roguelike games. 
and they basically had a three by three grid where rooms could spawn. The room size was random and the hallways between them were random. And that's how they kind of generated these random levels in the dungeon, as well as what was in all of those rooms. The idea for permadeath, which is a defining characteristic of Rogue, came out from playtesting with other students. Toy felt that people were learning like the best way to play it, dying over and over again, or just like they kept find, figuring out a certain way to play it. And he wanted people to be more concerned with trying not to die than restarting and getting the best way to do it. So he put permadeath in there so that people would be a lot more careful and kind of think about their decisions a lot more. And Rogue is going to be continually developed and there's going to be a lot of different versions. But again, we want to take a look at this one because it's got the classic ASCII graphic visuals. Uh, and obviously, it spawned the term and game genre roguelike. Uh, this can represent a whole host of games with exploration, random elements, and permadeath. In the years following this, roguelike is going to specifically refer to, though, things with exploration, random elements, and permadeath, but also overhead point of view and a turn-based dungeon exploration kind of style. And many people do note that Beneath Apple Manor and Pettit 5 kind of could both qualify as roguelikes before Rogue released, but both of them were pretty small and not known very widely, whereas Rogue, once it was on ARPANET, kind of got distributed pretty far. So that is why it's sort of crowned as the king of this and the creator of the genre. So now let me just talk about the gameplay pretty briefly because I've mentioned it a little bit in the history. It's a very interesting stripped down dungeon crawler type of game. It has elements that we've come to know from the genre like permadeath, randomly generated dungeons, and turn-based combat, which isn't so popular anymore, but it was traditionally in the genre. And it also has fun stuff I didn't even know about, like scrolls of identifying, where you could identify magical armor, armor and weapons that you can equip, and potions with various effects that you can take. And the goal is basically to keep exploring the dungeon and progressing deeper and finding a precious amulet to win the game and get a high score. You have stats at the bottom of the screen, which are your health, your strength, your accuracy, and your experience. And you actually do get experience by slaying monsters. And when you level up, you get more health and maybe more strength and accuracy, although it seems like those are more based on the items that you pick up. There's also a food mechanic. Uh, but it seems like it's more as something that heals you when you eat it and not as like a time limit kind of like it is in uh, Ultima. And one of my favorite mechanics of this game is that since everything is represented by a character graphic, you know, like a slash or a percent sign or an equal sign, you can hit the question mark button at any time on the screen to identify any of the symbols that are on the screen and it'll tell you what it is, uh, which perfect system. Even though there's not many visuals, it gave me like all the information I needed to know. So let me move on to my ratings for Rogue now. For graphics, this was tough. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's not great looking. So I ended up only giving it a 1 out of 10, but it still does manage to look surprisingly good. And I know like exactly what's going on in the game. The only reason I didn't really rate it higher is because it's not like it's making complex designs out of the character graphics like we've seen before. You know, you're just an at symbol. The rooms are just a bunch of, I think, dashes and stuff like that. And it works really well, but 
it's not that visually interesting. Uh, but I do love that everything's a unique symbol. I think potions are always exclamation points. All of the monsters are letters. So, you know, when you see an H chasing you, run away because that's a hobgoblin, stuff like that. And I really like the layout of the rooms and hallways and how it reveals the map as you explore it. Uh, it's a really cool function. The number sign is the hallways, and it's really fun dashing through them and seeing it like reveal the next room as you go into it. Uh, so there's some pretty interesting stuff there, but it is just ASCII graphics. Moving on to sounds, I gave this a 0 out of 10. As far as I could tell, there are no sounds for Rogue, unfortunately. But now let's talk about gameplay. This is kind of the really important one. and I gave this a 3 out of 10. I mean, despite the fact that this is so stripped down. And I wouldn't say that I could play it for hours and hours on end like I can with roguelikes today. It still holds up impressively well. Definitely has that one more run feeling when you get permadeath and have to start over from the very beginning. And I just love how many interactable elements there are in the game. There's potions you can drink, there's scrolls you can use, there's secret rooms that you can find, and there's equipment like armors and weapons that you can use. I had one potion that I drank, and it doesn't tell you what the effect is unless you have a scroll of identifying. But I drank it, and it showed me the location of enemies currently on the map. And I had another scroll that I used that showed me where gold was located on the map and stuff like that. So there's a lot of cool, innovative stuff in this. Uh, the combat's simple, turn-based. You kind of like walk into the enemy and you'll repeatedly attack it. Uh, but it's nice that it's turn-based because you have plenty of time to plan whether or not you want to use your melee weapon, a bow, or a wand, or anything like that. And I also like that monsters after you've been on the map for a while they start hunting you down so sometimes you'll run into them in a hallway because there's some chasing you which is definitely scary and killed me quite a few times as i was playing and overall it was just surprisingly smooth and fun to play it was very fast and once i learned the controls everything just kind of like made sense like if i didn't know what something was i could ask figure out what it was and then proceed uh, so it was pretty cool one thing i was a little bummed about is that you collect gold as you go too. And as far as I know, there's no vendor for the gold. It's just like a high score mechanic. So I wish I would have been able to find a vendor like in many of the classic roguelikes like uh, Isaac or Enter the Gungeon or something like that to buy stuff from, but still pretty cool. So now let's move on to relevance. This was a tough one. Uh, ben talked to me about this because I was thinking about going low, but the more I think about it, I mean, it is a game that has a whole genre named after it. So it's hard to get much more relevant than that. Yeah. <laughs> so I gave it a 9.5 out of 10. I mean, because it's not the most well-known game, there's going to be versions of this that are probably more well-known than 3.6, but still it is the namesake of the roguelike genre. The base mechanics and the definitions of what a roguelike means have changed over the years. But it still created that genre, and it deserves that credit. Even if it wasn't the first game with permadeath and random dungeons, it was made popular through ARPANET, and it's definitely still remembered for it. So overall, I gave Rogue a 2.5 out of 10. It's a little low, but I mean, the graphics and sound do hold it back a bit. I'm sure if they keep the gameplay the same, but then add some nice visuals in some later versions of this game, it's going to be a lot higher. And I'm just so happy I finally got the chance to play it. It was a little bit of a pain to get it running on DOSBox, but uh, it's just 
super simple, super cool. I can see why that core gameplay was so appealing to people. And we're definitely going to see some more versions of this game, not by the same creator pretty soon. Uh, so I'm excited to see what comes next. Nice, man. Yeah, I love the random dungeons. They look, I mean, just visually, they look insanely cool. And I think the way that they kind of pop in, you said they were on a three by three grid. I didn't know that. It definitely doesn't feel like that. It feels very random, but everything makes sense and, and yeah. are connected in ways that how do they do that? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so I really love it. I will take a look at this game when it gets released later. I just let Wes have the worst version of it. So <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think the game, as you mentioned, it gets developed continuously for the next i want to say at least four years so yeah there's gonna be lots of opportunities for me to play a version but um this was i think the earliest one we could play so we did mm. and that's pretty cool all right wes we're out of computer land for a second there's only one other arcade game that we need to talk about in june before we go into july and it's my second review of the day it's called venture by exity and released in June of 1981, is an adventure game in the style of Berserk. So what that means, you've got, uh, in this case, it's not like a two-way joystick. I think Berserk was like this too. You can only fire in the direction that you're moving, right. which is kind yeah. of annoying or facing, but you can move in eight directions and you're kind of firing and shooting at enemies. And this game's pretty crazy. Before I really get into it, I have to mention, I completely didn't know this it's by exity but it's by specifically developed and programmed by howl ivy oh who, um <laughs> we've talked about his first game came out in 1974 wipeout <laughs> i think it was my game of the year in 1974 that is crazy but he's still around he's he's making games like venture which i think is awesome there's a lot to try to explain about this game it obviously pulls a lot from berserk um, which we talked about last year and in berserk you're in one room and there are some walls and, and enemies in the room and you basically had to shoot the enemies and on the edges of the screen there would be a way to leave the room and it would just spawn in another room and this game is kind of like that you've got these rooms but then when you leave the room you actually kind of zoom out to a kind of macro view of a larger world comprised of like four rooms and this actually reminds me a lot of route 16 that i played not too long ago oh, which was okay. like uh, yeah. this kind of card game that kind of zoomed out when you left a, a maze it feels a lot like that and actually your character again goes from uh when you're in a room he kind of looks like a smiley face with an arrow or, or with a bow and arrow um, but when you zoom out to like that macro view, he becomes just a dot. <laughs> so that was very similar. I was like, whoa, did they take that from the other game? I don't think so, but <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. But yeah, once you're inside of a room and every room, there's a treasure and your main goal is to steal the treasure in the room. And once you steal the treasure from all the rooms, you move on to the next like world, we'll say. I think it's supposed to be themed as like a level in a dungeon. So I guess you go down a level and then there's four new rooms. Um, there's three levels in total. And in each level, there's different rooms with different enemies. 
and then the whole thing resets. So in total, I think there's something like 12 unique rooms. And within each room, uh, you can't just dawdle in there because just like in Berserk, in Berserk, if you stayed too long in a room, an invincible enemy would come that actually walked through walls and kind of forced you to go to the next room or else you'd die. And that mechanic makes a reappearance here. In Berserk, that enemy was a smiley face, but in this one, he kind of looks like a weird squid creature. <laughs> Not really sure what it's supposed to be, but uh, it's pretty terrifying when it comes after you. It moves very fast, and there's not as many, like, walls, or... Uh, like, in general, I think the sprites feel a little bit larger in this game, so it's harder to dodge stuff. And it hunts you down a little bit more than I think it does in Berserk. So whenever you see it, you have to get out of there pretty quick. Luckily, you can leave the room whenever you want and go out to that kind of macro view and then re-enter the room and the enemy won't be there anymore. But if you did end up killing any enemies in that room, they will respawn. So it's kind of a time race to destroy all the enemies in the room, grab the treasure and get out. You don't have to kill all the enemies. You can just try to make it to the treasure and then get out and just dodge them. I would say, in general, the enemies don't feel like they're really hunting you the same way that the robots did in Berserk. They kind of just kind of bounce around the room, moving kind of randomly. I did read that there is AI for, like, them dodging your arrows, but I don't know that there's AI of them, like, chasing you. So, certainly, in some arrangements, I think it would just be easier just to dodge them and go for the, the treasure. There's also some rooms where... There are no enemies, it's more like a puzzle. There's one room in particular towards the beginning where you have to grab a diamond from the middle and there's some moving walls that you have to avoid. In this game, if you touch any of the walls, it immediately kills you. Oh god. It was that way in uh, Berserk as well, but uh, in this game it feels a little bit more harsh for some reason. I think your character is just a little fatter, <laughs> so it's harder. Um, so that room kind of made you feel like you were stealing a diamond from like a bank and avoiding the laser alarm system or something. It was kind of cool. But um, that's what the gameplay is. You're going in these rooms. You're shooting stuff with your bow and arrow and uh, grabbing a treasure and getting out. I think one other interesting mechanic is after you shoot an enemy, its body will stay on the screen and it slowly kind of decomposes over time but it will still kill you if you touch it while it's decomposing <laughs> which is kind of weird but it's it's cool i guess some of the walls are also destructible so i think that's kind of cool sometimes the walls are destructible sometimes they can open up or there's some movement to them so there's just a lot of different types of mechanics in here and i like in general the kind of theme of it and going into every different room there's a unique enemy in all of the 12 unique rooms, I believe. I think it's something oh, cool. like 12, but um, that's pretty cool. Um, there's also some enemies that can appear only after you take the treasure. I think that's pretty cool as well. So lots of different little things here. So why don't I get in my ratings and I'll talk a little bit more about it there. I've been talking about the gameplay a lot. I ended up giving the gameplay a 3 out of 10. I think it's quite fun. The only reason it's not higher is because I struggled mightily trying to play this. I think it's ridiculously hard. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, you can only have one bullet on screen at a time. And as I mentioned, you have to be walking towards the enemy to shoot them. 
And there's something about the resolution of this game compared to Berserk that everything just feels a lot more kind of blown up. And what that means is that your character feels a lot more vulnerable because um, he's just bigger. And I guess compared to how fast he moves, he moves very slow, even if you're trying to move as fast as you can. So I just felt like a lot of the enemies, if they wanted to go after me, what didn't really feel like there was a whole lot I could do there. And the enemies also, like you would think with a game like this, it would be kind of a certain size and be on a grid or something. But they move, uh, you know, pixel by pixel up or down. And their hitboxes, you have to hit them like in the middle of their body. But your arrow can only be on a eight directional shooting path. So they were constantly like in places where I could not hit them because it wasn't on one of the eight paths from my body, if that makes sense. They were in right. between. It's like, if I want to hit them, I have to go up really close to them. At that point, you're just, it's up to the whim of the game if they're just going to run into you or not, you know? <laughs> That's kind of how it felt. And uh, obviously the evil auto character, which I don't know what they what it's called in this one, but the character that spawns and is invulnerable, if you stay too long, just felt like way too fast in this game. Like if he spawns and you don't immediately try to leave, you're done for. <laughs> like you cannot dodge him. He moves faster than you. So. I think the game's just too hard to really be fun for me. So I think that's kind of what brought down the gameplay, but I really do enjoy how many unique rooms there are and just the kind of aspect of taking these uh, enemies down and grabbing treasure and getting out and going to that kind of overworld or macro view and going into a new room. That part was super fun. I really enjoyed it. But uh, if I die you know the first level constantly it's it's hard to say it's gonna be good you know so gameplay just gave it a three for graphics i also gave that a three it's hard to say because there's so many unique enemies in the game there's your guy who's just a weird smiley face but his bow and arrow looks great um you've got the overworld and the rooms themselves which are very plain and and dull but they're all unique shapes and kind of have a character to them just in what colors they are but everything is also just a one colored sprite it's not uh, multicolored sprites which is disappointing i liked it a lot just because of the variety of the enemies as i mentioned there's like a new enemy in every room which is great and they do look pretty iconic and different from like cyclopses to skeletons to dragons they're all here and they all look pretty good but they're just a single colored sprite so I wanted to go really high, but I couldn't because there just wasn't more colors involved. But I, I think this is pretty much as good as you can do with a single colored sprite, I think. <laughs> For sound, I ended up giving that a 3 out of 10 as well. Lots of 3s. But it's all like these dual harmony chip tunes, and they're playing all the time. There's a wide variety of them, and that really saved it for me because the actual shooting of your arrow sound, which is like the only other really sound that, that plays, I hate that sound. Oh, <laughs> it no. doesn't sound good to me at all. I think the chiptunes themselves get a little boring. I originally had the sound a lot lower until I was watching a gameplay video of somebody who made it, he made it like pretty far in the game because he turned on invincibility cheats. <laughs> but um, he made it to the third level, which has a yellow tint to all the walls and I think it's supposed to kind of represent you being in a pyramid or something 
and it started to play the Arabian theme, and I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> like, I liked it. And a uh, dual harmony, so... It's almost like with every new room, there's a new, like, little chip tune. So there's a ton of music in the game, and although I didn't enjoy all of them, just the ver- variety of it, I had to give it some points for sure. So, give it a three there. relevance i gave that an 8.5 out of 10 pretty high um the reason i did that is i feel like this is kind of almost an adventure game i mean it's kind of a dungeon crawling game on an arcade machine using not dual stick uh shooting but kind of that style i don't know like eight directional shooting real time you know not turn-based like right. it kind of is marrying some things I wish Ultima did. You know, Ultima actually had a much better world and story and a lot more depth than mechanics. But if it was real time, you know, I could shoot my arrows as fast as I wanted to. You know, that's kind of what this game is in some ways, uh, as far as the dungeon crawling aspect goes. So we very rarely see like I don't think I've we've played any dungeon crawling games on an arcade machine. So I just really hope that we see a lot more of these games and that this kind of genre takes off. I think it will. I think Berserk was really kind of the most, like the largest cause of that. But uh, I hope this game plays its part in popularizing this genre. And I hope it becomes, you know, the Zeldas of the future. So yeah, I'm uh, very excited to see where this goes. And overall, I gave it a 3 out of 10. I really did enjoy it. I thought it was good. If the game was just a little bit easier so I could actually play it, uh, it would have gotten higher scores. And the music did get a little bit on my nerves. There's no multicolored sprites. So it has its faults, but I think the core gameplay is just so solid that it kind of, you know, helps the game survive <laughs> and do well anyway. So, yeah, it's it's got a lot of um, potential, we'll say. Cool. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, not one that I was aware of, but I know that one that you were excited to take a look at. So I'm glad it uh, yeah. did something unique and kind of lived up to that excitement. Yeah, and the weird like zoom out of the map mechanic that Route 16 have had. I'm like, where is that coming from? Are we going to see a lot of that? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no idea. Uh, we'll have to see, and hopefully somebody masters it if it's going to stay around. <laughs> All right, but now let's move on and talk about one more game in June. Before we get to July, we have an Atari 2600 game that released, and that is Warlords, a version of their arcade game Warlords, which again was kind of like four-player breakout, where you're on the corners of the screen and you're trying to break the other person's castle. All right, and with that, we are going to move on to July. And uh, we're not going to do any of the big games in July because, I mean, we're already talking about Rogue and Ultima today. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to start off with just a couple honorable mentions. The first one here is called Game & Watch's Octopus. 
And uh, this is a great theme of a game. The idea is that you have to, uh, you're like a scuba diver at the bottom of the ocean. And you have to grab gold from like a, a sunken treasure chest while dodging the tentacles of an octopus that's trying to grab you. <laughs> so <laughs> nice. It's pretty much just another dodging game, but I thought the theming was cool. And uh, always good whenever we can uh, check out these game and watch games. Yeah, always got some great theming and wild, yeah. wild interpretations for what boils down to like a very simple game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so we're also going to have some clones, of course, of Game & Watch's Octopus. Um, I'm just going to mention a few of them here, but we will have the full list up on our site. We have uh, Octopus, a.k.a. Schnapp de Schatz uh, by CDL, and then also Octopus by Pocket Size, Octopus by Trickatronic, and Octopus by Otoys. All right, moving on to some other handhelds. Let's check back in with Bandai. We mentioned a couple of them. Uh, not too long ago. This one's called Monkey Business, and it's a simple juggling type game, you know, in that game of watch style, but this time it actually released on a real watch that had... Uh, oh, nice. <laughs> uh, it, it did have a normal handheld release version as well, but I like the watch version. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. <laughs> and then we also have another handheld here called Trojan Horse. It's by Gakken. I'm not going to try to say the foreign language version of this. Uh, but it is another juggling type game and watch game and this time you have to defend your village while also allowing fleeing citizens to come through the gates uh, and it had a kind of interesting kind of combat to it yeah, it's kind of it's interesting when these turn-based kind of dodging timing games become instead of like hit a button to not get hit by the octopus it's like you're fighting somebody hit the button to hit them you know right. yeah, yeah. it's not that far away from something like that so i think we're, we are going to see some of those games in the future that are a little bit more important but that was the first one that caught my eye this next one here is part of the time and fun series by vtech it's called sleepwalker and it's another game and watch type game about preventing sleepwalkers from injuring themselves <laughs> Where do they come up with this? I don't, I don't know, know, man. <laughs> it had a few more actions to prevent prevent them from hurting themselves in a normal juggling type game, so it was pretty cool. Always nice to check in on VTech as well as the main kind of competitor to uh, Game & Watch and Nintendo right now. Yeah, definitely. All right, now let's move on to some computer games. We have the Adventure Trilogy by Nelson Computer Systems, again, releasing in July. Uh, we don't have much info on these, unfortunately, but it is a real-time graphical text adventure with some combat and CRPG mechanics, and it came out for the TRS-80 Coco. Sounds cool. Mm -hmm. uh, the next one here is called Sneakers, which, can you guess what type of game it is, Wes? I bet I, you can't with a name like that. No. <laughs> it could be anything. <laughs> it was by Mark uh, Termel and Sirius Software. It came out on the Apple II and the Atari 8-bit. And was a Space Invaders type game. Oh, oh of course. <laughs> it had really good color graphics and a lot of different enemies, but no sound effects. So it was just kind of okay. Came out in July. And then we have Trip to Jupiter by Seabreeze Computing. Came out for the Atari 8-bit. And it is a pretty neat adventure to Jupiter involving a takeoff sequence, a turret gunning section, and a space, space race asteroid dodging section. And then just one arcade game to leave you guys off with here in July. It's Cosmic Avenger by Universal. Uh, this is like part of a series of games from like 
1978 or something. I think it started with Cosmic Alien or something. Okay. But yeah. um, in this version, it's a scramble type game that came out in July, but we've played a lot of them lately, so we didn't feel like we should cover this one. Yep. And there's going to be one clone for that Cosmic Avenger by VentureLine. All right. But with that being said, we are out for today. We did cover Ultima. That's oh, a pretty yeah. big one. And then Rogue. <laughs> that's maybe even a bigger one. <laughs> And I think both two games that are going to continue to be developed over the course of several years. So I think there's not the last time we're going to see both of these games. And then I also covered Venture by Exidy, which was a Berserk style game with a kind of a dungeon crawling theme to it that worked out a lot better in terms of theming to me than the original Berserk, which was just like an endless maze. Yeah. So I kind of liked how this was clear out four rooms and then something happens. I thought that was cool. So a bunch of great games, and it's not going to stop anytime soon. So I hope you guys are ready for even more. Oh, yeah, yeah, because July is going to be another big month. We got more fun stuff coming in 1981. So make sure to check out our website if you want to see some of the great stuff that we've already covered. Follow us on Twitter if you want announcements. And if you have any questions, feel free to send us an email. And with that, we'll catch you next time. See you all next time.